0: As we just sang, Lord, here we would seek you, because here you are found. We pray, Lord, that you would again come and dwell in our midst by your Spirit, that our hearts would respond to your initiative this morning, that we would open to your presence. It's in your name, Lord Christ, that we pray. Amen. And then go ahead and be seated. As Nathan said earlier, Merry Christmas. We still celebrate here the 12 days of Christmas, of which there's still one. Uh, And this morning we also particularly are celebrating the the Feast of the Holy Name. And that's what, I don't know, I might call one of the more obscure uh, feasts within the church calendar. I don't know about you, but it wasn't until I was sort of deeply enmeshed and and, uh, invested in the Anglican tradition that I had even ever heard of such a feast, the Feast of the Holy Name. Uh, Technically, the Feast of the Holy Name falls on January 1st each year, but as with other lesser feasts, the church can observe it on the, the following Sunday after that. But it falls on January 1st because that's one week, of course, after Christmas, And as we just prayed, you probably picked up from the the opening call as we prayed this morning, as we just heard in the gospel lesson, it was the eight days after his birth when Jesus was circumcised and given the name that the angel had foretold that we are celebrating today. And so, of course, our readings have a lot to say about the name of God and especially the name of Jesus. This morning, I want to go back before any of that back to the beginning, if you will, back to our first text from Exodus chapter 34. And I want to focus on this powerful exchange between Moses and the Lord, wherein God does the unthinkable and declares his personal name to Moses. So if you've got your Bible, you'll turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 34. Now, to to set the stage on this, it's important to understand that the Lord first declared his, his covenant, which is His special relationship with this people, Israel, in Exodus chapter 20. And then, uh, at that time, in Exodus chapter 20 and following, Moses received a, a bunch of additional instructions before receiving stone tablets that contained the words of that initial covenant statement. Which he gets in chapter 31. So, like I say, a lot of instructions, you know, 20 to 31. But you also might recall, if you know the story, that when Jesus, or sorry, when Moses was coming down from the mountain at that time, the Israelites, while he had gone, had been pretty busy and not in a good way. They thought that perhaps Moses had died up on the mountain. He'd been gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and they're like, "Who can be up by themselves on a mountain for 40 days and 40 nights?" Maybe he's gone. And so they clamor to Aaron to do something. And the bonehead has this great idea. Great, give me all of your gold jewelry and I'll fashion it into a golden calf so that we have an image of God that we can worship. Left to our own devices, we'll come up with something to do, right? And when Moses finally descends the mountain and comes upon the scene of the people bowing down before the golden calf, He is furious. He's like, what in the world are you doing? And he throws down the tablets and they shatter. Now, recognize that this is not just Moses flying off the handle and throwing stuff because he got mad. Far from a problem with rage, what Moses did was actually a a prophetic act. He was actually prophetically declaring that the people had already broken their covenant relationship with God. The third commandment of the Big Ten was, don't make for yourself any graven image. This is as if you're saying, this was pretty simple, guys, and you blew it. Right? Pretty sure gold cows fall under the purview of not making golden images. Now, God declared these laws, and then Moses lingered with the Lord about 40 days, and in just over a month, the people had managed to already violate their side of the covenant relationship. And so he cast down these tablets, effectively saying, you have broken this. It's as if, uh, you know, you and I entered into some sort of a legal contract, and you blew your side of the legal contract, right? You broke the contract. and, And so me, being my dramatic self, called you to my office and said, you know, tear up a copy of it before you say, we're done, right? This, this contract is broken because of what you've done. This was no small thing in the case of the so-called covenant people of God. They'd been drawn out of Egypt, and they had no defining feature. They were, they were just this random tribe at that point. They had no king, they had no land to claim, they had nothing that defined them except the fact that God had chosen them to be his people. And it's as if they threw that one distinguishing feature on the ground and stomped on it. Thus, understandably, the Lord burns against his people with anger. He tells them, great, you can still go up to the promised land because I promised that to your forefathers in that covenant was uh, irrevocable. I, I, I made that promise with no strings attached. So you can still go up to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. I will not go with you. In fact, he basically implies it's probably better for you that I not go with you, lest my anger burn against you and destroy you. He says, you're going without me. My presence will not go with you. See, the covenant had been laid down as a conditional arrangement outlining the relationship that the people were to have with the Lord and the implications of what that relationship meant as they tried to live it out the Lord effectively reiterates what Moses's actions had declared you broke your end of the deal already and so we can't be in relationship It's not until the people turn with weeping and repentance and and Moses actually prays this prayer of intercession on their behalf that the Lord relents and makes provision for another shot at this covenant relationship thing. What we have in the text before us this morning is the last bit of Moses' intercession and the Lord's gracious offer of a second chance. Moses began with a a personal plea for mercy, actually, before this text. Remember, he hadn't personally offended against the Lord. Yet he still had this job of leading this people into the promised land, but separate from the presence of the Lord. And so he says to the Lord, who then will go with me? He said, it'd be better for me to die in the wilderness than try to do this without you. Try to do this on my own. And so, out of love first for his servant Moses, the Lord relents and responds to his plea for mercy, saying that if Israel will repent, he will go with them. And Israel repents. They actually are punished by a scourging plague. And then God calls Moses back up the mountain with new blank tablets. And thus we read in verse 4, finally, of, of Exodus chapter 34. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Note how the reiteration of the covenant, this this second chance, it begins... With the Lord, with the declaration of his name, relationship with the Almighty begins with the Almighty. It is always by his initiative. It was his initiative that caused creation to be in the first place. It was by his initiative after Adam and Eve marred creation and and shame entered the picture that a plan for redemption took shape. It was his initiative that called Abraham out of the rest of the moon-worshipping pagans of the world. It was God's initiative that preserved the patriarchs and this tribe of Israelites from famine in Egypt. It was God's initiative that had led this very generation out of their bondage in Egypt into freedom and into covenant relationship. And so here now... It is his initiative that enables this second chance at walking in relationship. And thus it is that God declares his name to Moses. Remember back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asked God, you know, God commissions Moses to go and to speak to Pharaoh and to lead his people out of, uh, out of bondage. And, and Moses says, you know, if I go to the people and they ask me, well, who has sent you? What does God say to them? He says, "HaYa I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. But here, high on the mountain, after that work of deliverance in the Passover, after declaring his holiness in his first statement of this covenant relationship, after uh, his people have failed and repented and returned, after all of that, God chooses to reveal himself and to reveal his own personal name. Not a title, not a statement of being, but his name. Verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, is the closest rendering of that word, that personal name that we have. Because in a great irony of history, the Lord declared this personal name to his people through his servant Moses, and the people over their history piously obscured it again. You may or may not know that in the Jewish tradition, this divine name is never spoken. Even the rendering Yahweh is only really a guess, because traditionally Hebrew did not record vowels. In fact, the reason, the only reason that we know today how to spell and pronounce Hebrew is because at the point where the language was almost going into extinction, some rabbis took it upon themselves to go into the text and actually start putting vowel points into the text so that it could be read and pronounced and preserved. They did that with everything except the divine name. In fact, even today in synagogues, when a reader is reading from the Torah, from the text, they will automatically see this name and and automatically it's like a a subconscious thing. They don't even think about it as they're doing it. They substitute a title, the Lord, Adonai, or Adonai Elohim, the Lord God or the Lord Most High. Never is this name taken upon the lips. This is where many of our English translations of the Bible take their cues in inserting the title Lord, often rendering the word in all caps to signal to the reader that that's what's going on here. But this is indicative of the relationship between Almighty God and humanity throughout the generations. God is always initiating, as I've said, initiating relationship with his people, inviting men and women to know him and to be deeply and intimately known by him and fully known. And very often men and women have decided they'd actually rather prefer not to have that. Again and again, God's people have demonstrated an attitude that says, I'm not sure how much I really actually want to know about God. I'd rather put him high on a shelf of unknowability. And I certainly know that I would not like to be deeply and intimately known by him. That's scary. Because relationship involves vulnerability. And vulnerability is scary in a world that has trained us to to armor up and protect our fragile selves at all costs. So just like when God first declared his covenant back in chapter 19, and he speaks to the people from the cloud, he calls them to to gather at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he actually speaks to the entire people, and they are terrified, and they say, please don't ever make us do that again. Here's an idea. Moses, you go talk to God on a regular basis, but do it somewhere else so we can't hear And then just come back and tell us what it is that he says. We don't ever want to have to go through that again. Same thing here. God says, know me. And a whole Judeo-Christian pious tradition has responded, ooh, I think I'd rather not. Because humans are terrified of vulnerability. And relationship requires risk and openness and vulnerability. What's more, relationship with the most high God of the universe requires a level of vulnerability that is open to a depth of scrutiny and correction that is frankly terrifying to many. And so our pious traditions sought to kind of preserve us from that. Let's just keep God elevated and unknowable we will happily engage with a whole elaborate external uh, system of religious ex- uh, observances. We're happy to erect temples and, 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 and great cathedrals and, and to engage with all these you know, ever more elaborate uh, rituals so that we can control that. We can kind of keep it out there and at arm's length. I don't want that vulnerability stuff, though. I don't want God actually coming in and messing with my life. Let's just do all of that and call it good. Let's not get too crazy and keep entertaining this idea of deep, vulnerable knowing. But that is what God desires for his people. That's what God desires for us. Because through that vulnerability is the path to experiencing love and path to experiencing healing. And that's precisely what Moses acknowledges in his response. In verse 8, it says, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." Now remember again the context. This is Moses' sort of final appeal, his final plea that the Lord would not forsake but would go with his people into the promised land despite their reluctance to enter relationship, despite their undeserving because of their flagrant violation of really probably one of the most simple of the Ten Commandments. Moses sees clearly what the people do not. This invitation, this initiative of the Lord's is not to be taken lightly. And it is absolutely necessary for Moses and the people to embrace in order to be healed. Moses recognizes first and foremost that to respond to God's relational initiative is to respond with confession and repentance. Come into our midst, please, Lord, but as you do, we acknowledge we are a stiff-necked people. We need your pardon for all that we have done and left undone. Friends, this is why the the Christian liturgy, liturgy has always responded to the initiative of God. We listen to the very words of God, and then we respond. We respond with confession, first confessing our faith in the creed, but then bowing and confessing all that we have done and left undone. confessing our stiff-necked self-centeredness and our own missing of the mark regularly. And so as I'm fond of saying, the liturgy teaches us what we need to know, what we need to do, what we need to model day by day in our pursuit of this relationship, paying attention to God's initiative through His Word, through the circumstances of our life as He guides us through them and then responding to him with confession and repentance. That's the basic, most fundamental root dynamic of the spiritual life of relationship with God, paying attention to his initiative and responding with confession. Well, We can't talk about this text without ending by acknowledging that ultimately the Lord does answer this prayer of Moses. Yes, he answers by forgiving the people and going before them and going with them into the promised land and they drop the ball several times between now and then and it's actually not even this generation that's allowed to go in because of their dropping of the ball and all of that. But ultimately, Moses' words ring with a truth and a reality that surpasses the events of the rest of the Exodus through Joshua history of the Old Testament people of God. Let the Lord go into the midst of us and pardon us and take us for an inheritance. Every Sunday when it ta- comes time for us to read from the gospel lesson, the priest or deacon very symbolically enacts this very motion by taking the gospel book that the symbol of all that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done in taking on flesh and coming among us to live his perfect life and die his perfect death. We take that symbol from its elevated place on the altar and we bring it down into the midst of the people. It's a very visual, physically enacted reminder each and every week that this prayer of Moses was ultimately answered in God's saving work through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God has come into the very midst of undeserving, broken humanity in order to have mercy, in order to pardon and to redeem humanity and to take us as his inheritance In Jesus, God has perfected the way for us to know Him and be deeply known by Him intimately and completely. Through Jesus, God paved the way to pour out His Holy Spirit into the very hearts, not just in the midst of a people physically gathered, but into the midst of His people individually, the very depths of our souls, to make the intimate relationship that He initiated here Initiated as he declares his personal name to Moses to make that a reality in the hearts and the lives, the very core of the being of his baptized people who have received the gift of his Spirit. Ultimately this passage begins with God's initiative in the wake of Israel's failures, but it ends with God's initiative in sending Jesus and His promised Holy Spirit to make relationship real and possible. So on this day, we celebrate that by declaring His divine name, the Almighty Most High God of the universe has issued an invitation to relationship. Relationship that invites, even requires us, to lay down our defenses, our our, our tendency to try to hold him at arm's length. And that invites and requires us to come in vulnerability to know and to be fully known. So I'd like us to pray and ask, Lord, first we do say, forgive us. We'll have a moment to confess, as I've said, the things done and left undone that have violated our covenant relationship with you. But right now, Lord, I want to confess all the ways that we, like your people throughout the ages, I said, I'm not sure I want that. That feels too scary. I don't want to know and be deeply known. And if you're willing this morning, people of God, I invite you to confess those places in your hearts, in your minds. And then invite the Lord to draw you into that intimacy to enable you, to empower you, to, to open your hands in vulnerability. Say, Lord, I do long for relationship with you. Move deep within my soul. So it is in your almighty name that we pray, our Lord and our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Us who recognize that we're walking along that path and thinking, yeah, 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 we took care of that in the past. Now I haven't been trying to take up those shackles again. But boy, I sure don't have any joy in my faithful endurance. I'm kind of running short on patience right now. Lord, would you pour out the gift of your spirit, your promise that the life of your kingdom is not a life of drudgery, but a life of true freedom. Restore to that soul, Lord, the joy of your salvation. Renew, Lord, right spirits within each of us this morning, we pray.